Welcome to the wonderful world of wine, exploring all things current in the world of wine with you. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. How are you doing today, Mark? Hey, Kim. Always great to talk wine. Indeed. So our first topic today is something that I think a few people are interested in. We've gotten comments from people about decanting and why would you decant a wine? At what point is a wine old enough or too old to decant? So we were going to talk a little bit about the two basic reasons why you might want to decant a wine. So decanting, let's just talk background. It means pouring the bottle of wine into some sort of vessel. It doesn't have to be fancy store-bought uh, decanting canter there's all there's all types out there but it could be just another jar or another glass or there are all sorts of shapes out there for different reasons but honestly what you're trying to do if you have a young wine is you're trying to add oxygen to the wine and you know often we talk about oxygen is the enemy of wine but it's not always the case that it's the enemy of wine sometimes you need a little bit of aeration to sort of wake up the wine and perk up those flavors yes so it's all about the aeration to, to activate these aromas in the wine is what i would call it do you find yourself decanting a lot of the wines, Kim, that you drink? Not a lot, but I do decant some. So there are two basic reasons why somebody might want to take their bottle of wine and pour it into something else. So there is the thing that you would want to do with a older bottle of wine that maybe has some sediment in the bottom of it that you don't want to drink, and you'd be pouring the wine off gently into a different container so that you could separate it from that sediment. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Or if you have a younger wine, and again, you want to get that aeration that oxygen into it. So some of it you would want to do for these younger wines, but then other the other way you would want to reserve it for an older kind of more delicate bottle. So let's first talk about getting that oxygen in those younger wines. Yeah, I like always doing something, aerating somehow a younger wine because they're just so young. I mean, yeah. it, it needs air. It needs movement to really activate what's going on in that, in that bottle of wine. And I find myself, maybe people decant more younger because there isn't much older wine out there being decanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, we've seen that kind of more more and more as we go through this business that there are fewer and fewer of those older bottles out there. You know, wineries will release their wines relatively young. So if you want to taste it in the way that it would be if you were storing it for a couple of years, it does help to open it up early and kind of swish it around and splash it around. Yeah, and I think maybe you think this too, Kim, but the, the decanter itself might be a geeky thing for <laughs> people to explore. So why spend that extra time? I, I've had experience is where I've seen people do things, say a box wine. I see a great benefit if you're having an event and you want to save some money and get some volume, you buy a box wine, say, and you decant it. It makes a big difference. So I see benefit on something like that. I see benefit of an aged wine where you want to get rid of, monitor the sediment, which you were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. But I think it's geeky and a lot of people don't do it. I think a, a nice way to think about it is we do our classes and we teach people how to swirl their wine and smell your wine before you swirl it, give it a bit of a swirl, and then smell your wine after you swirl it, you do see the difference in the aromas. You know, they definitely jump out of the glass a little bit more for you after it has had that aeration. So think about the concept of decanting, like swirling it in a really big glass. Like that's really what you're doing. It's like you're giving it a swirl times 10 or times 20. So I like to think of it that way. You're really just opening up the flavors and making it a little bit more enjoyable to drink. Yeah, we do that a lot 
when I pour an event, I'll either pour it through an aerator or decant it, put it back in the bottle. So they'll say like double decanting. Mm-hmm. You pour it in a decanter, pour it back in the bottle, and then pour it through an aerator. Wow. Um, so it really moves it. And the effect to me is when you walk in a room, the wine is just very aromatic. It's opened up mm-hmm. significantly. And then we show people how it's sitting to move it again, swirling in the glass. Right. But a lot of things have been done to it prior. So I think it makes a difference. Yeah. And I'll do something similar when I'm doing a tasting and maybe I have a big red that maybe it is a little bit young and the kind of wine that would taste better, say, in a year or two years. I'll definitely open that thing up earlier and I'll pour it into a decanter and keep it there for a couple of hours, giving it a a swirl and a swish every once in a while so that when it does come time to pour it in people's glasses, it is showing much better and it it honestly tastes a bit better too. And I've had, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, Kim, but I've had where a salesperson's come into me and the, the wine is in the bottle it's co- it's a cork is put back in the bottle but they had already decanted it and put it back in the bottle before mm. they presented it so when i tasted it, i'm like wow this is really opened up it's tasting good and then come to find out he's decanted it for hours put it back in the bottle so it's good on his part to present it that way but there's some tricks too. yeah it's a trick <laughs> and i've also heard instances where people will put say m&ms or something chocolatey in the decanter swirl it in the decanter then dump that and then pour the wine into the decanter to give it some extra flavors. Oh, I don't know about that. So, but I was thinking of if I, you could play around with kind of flavors that way if you wanted to give it more of a chocolate or to kill mm. another flavor in the wine. So Skittles in your Chardonnay. Yeah, I mean, you could do different things with the decanter, but I honestly don't decant as much as I use an aerator, which is a little like glass adapter tube that the wine swirls through and it really gushes that air in there really right. quick. It's easier for me to aerate. And it's smaller and you don't have to have the extra vessel to pour pour your bottle of wine into yeah that o- older wines i'll take the time to either pour it through a cheesecloth or something to get the sediment and let it really aerate and open up um i find a great value but for the younger wines it's more of a aerator than a decanter right. for me and for those older ones what happens when red wine especially gets old is that the the tannin particles you know those things that are found in the skin of the grapes that add and contribute to the color of the wine those over time will clump together and if they get big enough and heavy enough they'll settle to the bottom of your of your bottle so you might find if you have an older bottle of red that you've got like this stuff at the bottom of the bottle. You might think that that means the wine is bad. It doesn't. It just means that it's had some time to age. That stuff's not going to hurt you because again, it's just the tannins, but it doesn't taste very good. You know, it's gritty, it's bitter. You don't want to drink it. So when you have a bottle like that, it helps if you've set it so it stands up and is nice and still for a little while and all that stuff has settled to the bottom. And then if you have a, a decanter or some other sort of vessel that you can pour it into, you just gently pour the wine into that other vessel, not aerating it so much just a little bit but then you leave all that sediment just in the bottom the bottom of your bottle and it makes for uh, again a more a more pleasant tasting experience yeah and the the sediment you can also find if you see a wine that's labeled unfined i find that Mm -hmm. it's good to decant those wines too because they don't clean out all that sediment they just bottle it without cleaning up basically so it might be a little cloudy might have some stuff in there so decanting can be a great value for that And, and it may seem counterintuitive but that's usually a sign of a wine that has had more attention paid to it by the winemaker. They're trying to take a little bit more of a hands-off approach and just let the wine 
kind of develop naturally instead of having all sorts of chemical things done to it. So it's not necessarily an indicator that it's a poorly made or a bad wine. It's usually the opposite. There's, there's some interesting things. I, I'm sure you've seen them in wine gadget catalogs, but there's a whole thing about the presentation of these decanters where they're making these huge glass tubes and it's swirling mm. through multiple. I mean, you can pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars for these fancy decanters. Yeah, there are different just, styles out yeah, there. Yeah, I just don't see why you would do it. I mean, if you go to a restaurant, they're not using these fancy decanters. Because they're basic, pretty. They're pretty, <laughs> but I, I just don't see the value. And it must be a cleaning nightmare too. Oh my God, I can't even imagine. <laughs> you, you know, when you use a decanter, that wine sits in there and, and it, they're very hard to, to get clean. Yeah. So that would be a nightmare. And if you have a chance, take a look. Google decanters or fancy decanters or wine enthusiasts has a, a product catalog. They're very interesting uh, devices. I'm not sure if they're worth. Very interesting. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. My name is Mark Lindsay. If you want to find more information about myself, you can go to franklinliquors.com. My partner in wine, Kim Simone. More information about Kim, you can go to her website, vinitaswinework.com. Our next topic is the oldest wine ever discovered. And Kim, I feel like we just talked about this recently. It's always in the news. Someone else is coming up saying they found the oldest wine in the world. I know. It's kind of cool. I studied anthropology and archaeology in in college. So this is kind of a a pet favorite subject of mine. But there was a discovery made by a professor at UPenn, which has quite the archaeology department of what scientists now think is the oldest residuals of wine uh, that anybody has discovered. And it's about 8,000 years old. Previous to the discovery of an oldest wine was 7,000 years old. So this is adding 1,000 years to what we know of uh, wine making and grape cultivation. And what I thought was really cool about this discovery was they didn't discover like grape seeds or a a bit of a, a vine plant. They actually discovered residue in big jars that had the same chemical structure as wine. And they discovered it through the balance of the acids, and in particular, tartaric acid, which is really only found in wine, which I thought was so cool because they used all these other specialties like biology and botany to check out this residue and to determine that, yes, this actually came from fermented grape juice. So I thought that was really neat. Yeah. And not only were they just clay jars, but they were 300 liter jars. They were really big. So (laughs) not only did they discover the oldest wine, but they were like the franzier of of (laughs) winemaking. If you can 300 liter leaders is huge. It's a lot of wine. So uh, very, very interesting. And we did talk in the past about like discoveries, like you said, where they found the grape seeds. So this true evidence that there was winemaking. And I think prior, there was also something at one time saying alcohol was discovered like 9,000 years ago in China. Yeah, that's the um, oldest, the oldest discovery of, of a fermented beverages in China for about, so I think 7,000 BC is what they're thinking. So this is uh, not necessarily the oldest discovery of alcohol, oldest wine, but the oldest grape wine. Which is wine. what we care about. So. <laughs> I mean, they're obviously going to do a DNA, so couldn't they say what the actual grape would be? They probably could, but given that a lot of 
our modern grapes that are used for wine have come across by crossings of older varieties of grape, this probably isn't a grape variety that we that we would understand now. I mean, even wine that was made, say, 2,000 years ago in ancient Rome wasn't necessarily made with the grape varieties that we're familiar with from Italy now. So like there was no Sangiovese in Rome. You know, it was it was other varieties that were the, the parents and the grandparents and the great grandparents of the varieties that we know now. So, I mean, if they do some DNA testing, I think that would be really fascinating, but I, I don't necessarily think they're going to be like, hey, it's Chardonnay. Yeah, so that's that's interesting. They, it would probably be some local grape that's mm-hmm. no longer around. Right. And, and this region was where Armenia or Georgia? Armenia, southern Georgia, which is not surprising because that's where we've thought all along that the birthplace of wine, of grape wine is anyway. So that kind of follows well, what we would have expected to find. Yeah, I'd like to see, I mean, I think this was just something they wanted to release it, say, yeah, we found it. We initially know it's wine, but I think they're obviously going to study it a little bit more. And I'd be interested in the follow-up of what they actually get out of it. Yeah, well, um, I'm going to be keeping my eye on this story. I, it's curious how they'd also know from, I guess they must have found a ton of clay if they think it was a 300 liter jar yeah, as well. Yeah, they must have found so, an awful lot. Or the actual, you know, the pieces of the pot and they put it all together and feeling <laughs> this gigantic. A lot of work. <laughs> so it's huge work. though. But we'll keep an eye on it and see what what happens with this story. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine with Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi. I can be found at my website, which is vinitaswineworks.com, and you can find Mark at franklinliquors.com. So when you think about wine and crushing wine, the image of people in a big vat of grapes dancing on it and crushing it with their feet come to mind. I think a lot of people have this image in their mind, Mark, that, you know, this is the traditional way that people make wine. And is it still done these days? And the answer is yes. In some places, grapes are still crushed with their feet. Have you ever had any experience doing this? I know that I haven't. I've seen it, but... No, I've, I've never done I think, was it the I Love Lucy episode? <laughs> no, I think where... that's what everybody thinks and of. See, I mean, I've seen it in text sheets like from Portugal. It's very common that they... You'll see an image every once in a while where they're all gathering hand and standing in a big vat of wine and holding each other because if they fall and they fall <laughs> into the fermenting wine, they can actually pass out. So it, I the term is... Is it trotting? trotting I say trotting. Tro- trotting. I've seen the term used and you inquire about it. And I don't know if you want to see that on your label that you know that there's toes in your uh-huh. wine. They really are not wearing shoes. They're not wearing it's shoes. bare feet. Nope. And the whole theory behind this is the pressure from your foot is like the perfect pressure to crush a grape and right. get the exact perfect amount of juice out of it. But it's kind of disgusting. <laughs> you know? Well, then you think, you know, alcohol kills a, a whole lot of things. So yeah, what's the fermentation? Yeah takes place yeah it is alcohol but this is you know this is more of a traditional practice so we don't see this winemaking technique used in too many places in the world anymore but the one place where it is still used from time to time is in Portugal so there are some port producers that will have people actually stomp on the grapes and like Mark said it's because the the pressure that a human foot can put on a grape is enough that it will release the juices and that it will crush the skins a little bit but what it doesn't do is crush up the seeds and that 
that's really important because the seeds can release a lot of bitter tannins. So you need some tannins, but it's those bitter tannins from the seeds that you don't want a whole lot of. So the whole reason why winemakers have developed new technology, which most winemakers, if they're looking for a gentle pressing, will use something called a bladder press, which means that there's like a big inflatable bag in the middle of a wine press that fills up with air, fills up with water, and then gently crushes the grapes. And really what it's doing is mimicking the action of the human foot, putting that same kind of pressure on the grapes without hurting those seeds. So some producers that have gone back to the more traditional way of, of doing it, uh, I think it's, it's interesting that this is still a method that, that can be used to make fine wine. And it's so interesting that they actually develop these machines and technology based on the human foot. That's right. It bladders and whatnot. And I think most of the time, it's just a traditional winemaking technique that they get together and they, they have a party and they make a little bit of wine yeah. using this. But there's music, I, there's singing, there's laughter, there's food. There's so much more that goes into wine than just drinking it as the finished product, especially when it's part of someone's culture or daily life or it's what your family's been doing for generations and generations. It's just great. Sometimes it's a great big party. It is it is something fun to watch, though, because the just how they're all holding each other up, you think it's because they're drunk or uh, <laughs> it's actually a safety thing so they don't pass out in the wine or fall in the wine. Yeah, they don't um, want to fall in the wine. But it's, it's interesting to watch. I, I don't... Do you ever source out wines based on this winemaking method? I don't think I've ever seen it mentioned on a label, honestly. Yeah, so it's not like a great marketing tool. I think it's just a historic part of the winemaking for a for a company. But marketing, I, I don't think it's a good idea. You know, it would <laughs> yeah. be the perfect thing for like barefoot, wouldn't it? Like they started, <laughs> if they started foot trotting the that wine. That would be funny. Welcome back to the wonderful world of wine. We're exploring all things wine with you. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. If you'd like to find out more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. To find out more information about Kim, go to vinitaswineworks.com. Now we're going to talk about five ways how to make bad wine better. Now, first off, Kim, we have to define what is bad wine. Yeah. What are they saying is bad and what to do? So I think what we're talking about here is not spoiled wine, is not wine that you open up and is corked, meaning that it smells kind of musty and moldy. Bring that one back to the store. You don't want to really be drinking anything that has started to turn to vinegar or again, is really old and oxidized. What we're talking about here is, I would say, more cheap wine than, than bad wine. You know, something that... Inexpensive wine. Inexpensive wine. (laughs) We talk about that a lot. Yeah. So, you know, maybe your lesser quality wine. It might not be the most delicious thing in your glass, but you have some of it lying around. What can you do with it? So So, I thought there were some interesting ideas here. So something you open, it's not your style, but you don't want to waste it. Right. Or a leftover wine, say. Mm -hmm. And and I do run into this every once in a while. I'll have extra bottles or half open something from an event or whatever, and I'll bring it home. And I'm like, what the heck am I going to do with this? But there, there definitely are some things that you can do with them. So one of my favorite things to do is to like make a cocktail or make a sangria out of them. And there are all sorts of sangria recipes out there on the internet. There are some for summer. There are some for winter. You, know, you can do cold sangrias. You can do warmed up things. So that's kind of fun. And by adding fruit juices and a little bit of sugar and maybe some brandy, you're changing the flavor enough that, yeah, the wine is your, your base liquid in there, but you're altering the flavor enough that you can 
can kind of hide that lesser quality wine. And th- that's a big thing that restaurants do with their, you know, wine they're not happy with, say, they don't want to waste it, but they don't want to serve it the way it is. So they just throw in a big batch of sangria. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that is very common. Would you consider that also, they're saying a spritzer. Sangria and spritzer are not the same. You mix in with club soda, similar, yeah. similar style. Yeah, I think if you're a little bit happier with the flavor of your wine and it's not a big, heavy, oaky Chardonnay, let's say, then yeah, totally turn to the, the spritzer thing. Well, Sauvignon Blanc or cheap Riesling. Sorry, inexpensive. Inexpensive. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, totally do a spritzer, and especially in the summertime. And, you know, you add some club soda to that, slice of lemon or a slice of lime orange something like that yeah that could be you can a, do that a nice with refreshing. red red wine as well oh yeah some reds yeah so then they were saying uh, mulled wine, which I find this is trends always in the fall mm-hmm. or cooler months. Yeah, fall, winter. So it's sort of the flip side of the sangria coin. It's like if you want something fresh and fruity for the summertime, but then something for those colder months, make a mulled wine. So you'd add some spices to it. Again, you know, some orange slices or lemon slice and let that heat up for a little while. The only thing I would be concerned about for this would be using a really high alcohol red wine, because as you heat it up, the higher alcohol, I think, is going to become a little bit more apparent. But for something that's a little bit of a lighter red, certainly an unoaked, inexpensive red could certainly work really well for a mulled wine. So this was this has been trending a lot lately as far as like a crock pot type of thing. Yeah. Now, when you do this, Kim, do you actually boil the wine or you just heat it? I heat it kind of just to a bare simmer so that the spices that I put in there will start releasing their oils and their flavors. Because if you don't heat the spices enough, you're not going to get the full flavor out of them. But it's that balance. You don't want to overheat the wine because you don't want to necessarily necessarily concentrate some of the other things in the wine like the tannins and you don't want to drink it when it's boiling boiling hot but you need to get it hot enough so that those other flavors can meld with the wine so it's not bubbling no, hot. not really. And yeah. I think that's why the crock pot kind of comes in really handy because when you heat it in the crock pot, you're getting it hot enough, but you're not necessarily bringing it to a full boil. So if you're doing it for a crowd, that would definitely be a smart way to go. The next item they suggested was put a penny in the wine. Now, this is more for a wine fault than Yeah, this one was a, I thought wine. this was a little weird. Yeah, be, be, like, because it's I've stressing. I've never tried this. I've never tried it either. I've always heard if you there's a certain fault in, in a wine where you want to take something out of it, you decant it say and throw a penny in and the copper of the penny takes that fault away from the wine and the fault that we're talking about here is probably not anything that i think a lot of people experience it's a it's a problem called uh mercaptans which you'll open a bottle of wine or take a sniff of a glass of wine and it'll smell sort of garlicky or cabbagey or oniony something like that and honestly i do not run across this very often so um i don't even know the last time i smelled this but the next time i do maybe i'll throw a penny in there and see what happens yeah, it's just they going in good direction of five ways and they kind of went with this. That, <laughs> I mean, you could have talked about a, other things about how to do things with corked wine and everything else. So I, I didn't see why they mentioned this with yeah. the others. But And then and finally for me, the cooking with it. I mean, you're big on this. To me, I, I never, I either drink it or I dump it. I don't yeah. cook with it, but I know you do. And yeah, usually the rule of thumb that we like to give people is if you don't want to drink it, then you don't want to cook with it. Because especially for certain things like pan sauces, you're going to concentrate those flavors as you remove the water from pan sauce or your stew or whatever. As as the water evaporates out of it, the flavors of the wine are going to get stronger and stronger. So I don't necessarily think you want to use a wine that you wouldn't want to drink uh, because you're not going to necessarily hide the flavors by putting it in a sauce. You're kind of going to amp them up a little bit, even though you're mixing it with other things. So my jury is kind of out on the 
cook with it. That being said, I will use wine that I've had on my counter for a few days that might not be the most delicious thing to drink. I will I will cook with it. So I, I guess ever, I'm kind of half and half on this one. Have you ever opened a bottle you had high expectations for? You said, oh, I don't really want to. I'm not going to enjoy this just sitting and drinking or having it with food. So I'll just cook with it. Yeah, I've done yeah. that. You know, throw a little bit in tomato sauce or a stew or a braise or something like that. Sure. Because it might not necessarily be that it's a bad wine. Uh, there might not be anything wrong with it. It might just, maybe it's a little, maybe it's a little old. And there certainly are plenty of recipes that call for vinegar as a flavoring. So if you have an older wine that's kind of heading in that direction, you can kind of substitute it out. Like I've used wines like that in salad dressings and stuff like that. And it kind of brings everything together. So that never has posed too much of a problem for me. What about the ice cube or popsicle th- idea I've of leftover? never ever frozen any wine. I saw that on Martha Stewart like years ago. Like what to do with leftover wine? Freeze it in ice cube trays. Ice cube trays. But I've then what do you do? You're throwing that. that in another wine? I just don't understand the whole theory about the see, wine ice cubes. That I could see it as cooking with. Like, so so you, say you meet, you need a quarter of a cup of wine for a recipe. You don't want to open a whole nother bottle if you don't have something open. Well, I've got, you know, four ice cubes of white wine in my freezer. Then I can see that coming in handy. So it's like little portion sizes, which would be cool to have on hand. No, I don't usually that's a good have idea, that much, actually. Yeah, I don't usually have that much wine on hand that I would consider necessarily freezing, but, but that could totally work. You just have to have a really, really cold freezer because wine does freeze at a lower temperature because of the alcohol in it. So you might get more of a wine slushy than you will a wine ice cube. Any other things you would say would make a bad wine better? The last suggestion in this article um, was to make what's called a calimocho I was going to ask you about that because I so didn't what, know what the heck What I think about. is so interesting about this. So this is, you would do 50-50 red wine and Coca-Cola. And this was what my mother and her generation grew up drinking because they were the children of Italian immigrants. The kids were allowed to have a little bit of wine at dinner, but they would cut it with soda. And when I was working in the wine store that I was working in in Boston, I would have customers who every once in a while would say that, yeah, you know, we would do this. We would do red wine and we would do Coke or we would do red wine and we would do orange soda. Apparently, this is a really big thing in Spain. You would have a glass of red wine and you'd cut it with orange soda and you have like an instant sangria. So it's this thing of mixing wine and soda seems to be appearing in a bunch of different cultures, which it's like, okay, you know, maybe we should try this out. And in the in the past, I did see that this was a huge trend in China and okay, the whole surprised. thing where they're buying a lot of wine and they're buying expensive wine but their culture is to mix it with coke oh that's interesting so they like it sweeter so they'll buy a nice dry wine but half and half with coke so i didn't know the term yeah but i think that is interesting i mean if that's what you like i just don't see wasting a nice bordeaux and mixing it with (laughs) with the coca-cola so use your more inexpensive wine and you know cut it with a little bit of soda Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. If you want to find out more information about this show, please go to our Facebook page at The Wonderful World of Wine. Cheers. Cheers.